Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Glad you could join us on this beautiful day as we continue down a uh, <laughs> very, very interesting topic. So we're in 1 Corinthians 11. We're trying to figure out what all this head covering stuff is about. And the more I study this, the more I think, hmm, I wish Paul were here so I could ask him some questions. So what I want to do today is I want to uh, look at, at one phrase in verse 10, and then uh, we'll look at one very interesting theory uh, that has been proposed on uh, on head coverings, and then hopefully sort of begin to bring this thing down to a landing uh, today. We'll see how far we get. So in verse 10, Paul says this, Therefore a woman ought to have authority on her head. Now we looked at that some yesterday and uh, talked about the theme through here being authority. And the NAS puts symbol, and we discussed that. We'll come back to that, but it's this last phrase here, because of the angels, that seems out of nowhere, doesn't it? He's cruising along, man's ahead of the wife, wife's ahead of the, or a woman, and uh, Christ is the head of man, God's the head of Christ, woman needs to have her head covered or else shave her head, uh, Don't men should not cover their head, and so on. Therefore, women ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? <laughs> just seems out of nowhere. I think I may have mentioned this yesterday that uh, a fellow pastor and I years ago preaching through this uh, just would laugh at that. And that became the, uh, the, the, the end of all dispute. If we couldn't figure something out, we would just say, well, because of the angels and, and move on. Well, there's a couple of a uh, couple of thoughts. Uh, there, some have put forth the uh, the concept that there was a concern for women attracting the angelic realm. Uh, that if women are not uh, dressed in a certain way, if they're not modestly dressed, it can be attractive to the uh, the angelic realm. Similar to if you're familiar with Genesis. 6, where it says they're the sons of God, married the daughters of men, and they had children. And in Second Peter and in Jude, uh, it seems to refer to that situation. And God put those sons of God, which are taken to be angels, put them in, in prison in the spiritual realm as punishment for uh, leaving their appropriate abode and going and mating with these human women. So you've got angels mating with human women, producing uh, these Nephilim, these interesting offspring there, and God being angry at the angels for, for doing that. And so the theory is that women need to guard themselves here from falling into that same temptation and being a temptation to the, uh, uh, to the angels, something along those lines. Problem with that I see is if this context is the church gathered where these women are praying and prophesying, why would the concern be re excluded, exclusive to that setting? Why wouldn't it be on all occasions? Women need to be careful. In fact, uh, would they not have to have their head covered 24-7 everywhere they go? Um, I don't know. I, it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Uh, 
why this context of praying and prophesying would be especially the concern in that in that view. Um, so it's out there. Uh, some you know very accomplished scholars uh, hold that view and think that's the concern. And they would say we are so secularized in our day that we don't give much credence to the angelic realm. There's this whole realm of of uh, of true of reality that exists. And, and I believe that's true. Uh, we ha- there are angelic beings, demonic beings, spiritual beings around us doing what they're supposed to be doing uh, that we can't perceive. And it is easy for us to forget that that is true. But it, it doesn't make sense to me in the context. Now, somebody else mentioned in a comment that uh, this flows on from chapter 10. And maybe this isn't about the church gathered, that that doesn't pick up until the next section when he talks about the Lord's Supper. Uh, if that's the case, if this is generic, if this is if this is universal and not just the church gathered, then again, we've we've got to deal with is Paul saying women should have this authority on their head 24-7 everywhere they are in every context. And what kind of praying and prophesying is he describing if it's not the church gathered? When you know, do do people just prophesy in the in the shower? And do they have to have their head covered in the shower? And uh, so anyway, those are those kind of questions do not disprove a point. But we we're we're just trying to make sense of this, right? And uh, so it seems to me like the setting is the church gathered. That's why the praying and prophesying is mentioned. And I don't see why angels would be particularly attracted to uncovered heads of women there and they wouldn't be somewhere else. Again, I may be wrong. I may, that, that view may be right. It just doesn't make sense to me. So here's, here's the other uh, view, the one that I think is more plausible in my opinion, but it is certainly not conclusive in my estimation. Um, good morning, folks. Hey, Keith and Curtis and Mike, Hugo. Good, glad to have you all with us. So if you, uh, if you remember, I mentioned Bruce Winter's book. I think it's called Roman Wives, Roman Widows. And he makes a case along these lines, and I, I may not get him exactly right, but it's at least directionally this way, and, and it makes some sense to me. But it's going to be, seem very strange to some of you probably, but not as strange as the, the next view I'm going to tell you about, so hang on for that. So um, angel, as you probably know, it, the word itself means, well, I should ask you, do you know what the word angel means? I'll give you a second here to see if anybody gets it. it it's a word that we use uh, all the time to describe these spiritual beings, but the word itself, angelos, in the Greek, do you know what it means? Let me read. Uh, uh, yeah, prep for eternity home said, God, it means messenger. And he also says, could it be in relation to the headship of Christ and angels and the headship of man and woman? Uh, maybe. Could it be in relation to the headship of Christ and angels and the headship of man and woman? Hmm. Maybe, although when he lists that string of headship earlier uh, up here, at the beginning of verse 3, I want you to understand Christ is the head of every man, the man's the head of the woman, God's the head of Christ. It would seem like that would be the place to put it. And maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're getting at, but 
Yeah, maybe. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, so several of you got it. Angel means messenger. So if you translate it that way, does that change anything? Therefore, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the messengers. It does change the sense a little bit, doesn't it? When we see angels, we think spiritual beings. But if it's because of the messengers, then that raises the question, are there messengers that Paul would be concerned about that are not spiritual beings? And Dr. Winter offers a, uh, a plausible theory on that. So let me give you just a uh, quick overview. Again, you can consult his book for more details. But um, so when uh, years ago, I had a friend who became a missionary in China. And he and his wife were there. And of course, they did what missionaries do. They, uh, they developed relationships with people and invited them to study the Bible, to, uh, to come and join them, and they would preach the gospel to them. Now, they were there. They had uh, you know, jobs. They, they were there uh, on a work visa kind of thing. But their real motivation was to preach the gospel. And as people accepted their invitation for discussion and study and that kind of thing, uh, they would invite them into their homes and my friend would teach them. Well, there were, for lack of a better word, spies sent by the government around to, um, to check in on these groups. The government knew there were these home churches, right? In China, there's, there's an above ground endorsed church. And then there's the underground church. Uh, that is preaching the true gospel, and uh, that's that's the the groups you want to pray for and be part of. Um, and and so, but the government knew these churches were there, and the reason they knew is they would send spies to feign being interested. And in reality, these these guys were there to try to see what's going on. Are, are the is this underground church teaching things that are going to raise a rebellion against the government? That kind of thing. And so my friend uh, told me about how he would, uh, at one time in particular, he's teaching, he's writing stuff up on a chalkboard or whiteboard or something, uh, teaching through some aspect of the gospel in the New Testament. And this guy who had come a a few times, who appeared to be interested in Christianity, suddenly whips out his phone. I think it was a flip phone. This was a few years ago. Takes a couple of quick pictures and then gets out of there in a hurry, and they never saw him again. Well, what was that guy doing? He was spying on uh, this gathering, and he was sent there by the government to check it out, and now he had some uh, pictorial proof of what uh, what was being taught because he, he captured the, uh, the writing on the board. And so that's what his job was. He was there to take back a message to the uh, the government, to the leaders, to say this is what this group is doing. So Dr. Winter, in his book, uh, suggests and offers evidence that Rome was doing the same thing in the early church period. That uh, the Caesar's you know, concern, you've heard of the Pax Romana, the, the concern was to keep peace and to... Uh, to 
quickly stomp out rebellion and any any religious group, any group at all that was raising a revolution were put out, uh, quickly taken, uh, snuffed out. So the idea was that uh, they would send these spies to infiltrate different things that were going on, including Christian gatherings, just to see what they were teaching and ask, are they teaching anything contrary to Roman law? Are they uh, encouraging people to rebel against Caesar? Are they, are they promoting anything that would cause disturbances? So the theory is that, uh, as I've told you before, there was this uh, feminist rebellion in the first century, throwing off restraint and constraint, uh, these, these wives, especially from these proper homes. Remember we talked about that? The, the man would marry a woman. They had to both be Roman citizens, and the, the wife's job was to raise the kids, take care of the home. Uh, she didn't go out in public much, and uh, she was there basically to come along the side the husband and, and take care of the home and the children. And then the, the husband could do whatever he want. He could have sex with basically whoever he wanted as long as it wasn't a, a proper a married woman, and uh, he did his thing. And that these wives were throwing off all of that and saying, no, we're going to be as licentious as the husbands are. We're going to go out in public. We're going to go party. We're going to, we're going to be just like the men kind of thing. And that Caesar would send messengers around to spy on influential people, gatherings, uh, anywhere that they thought there might be a rebellion starting. So if that's what's going on, then the angels here are not spiritual beings, but they are messengers of the emperor checking out these Christian gatherings to see what's being taught. And that Paul here is adding to his, the rest of his argument that women need to dress appropriately because of these messengers because the church doesn't want to allow these messengers to have a report, going back to the governing officials, that Christians are stirring rebellion. So, uh, you know, that makes more sense to me than any description of these spiritual beings that Paul's concerned about the angelic realm. Now, it's like I said, it is not conclusive in my mind. I see the weaknesses in it, but if that's true, if that was going on, that makes some sense. Uh, Prep for Eternity says, Doug, you're sharp in the languages. Does the text show a difference from angel or messenger? No, uh, it's the same word. So this can rightly be translated because of the angels or because of the messengers. There's nothing in the, uh, in the Greek here that would sway you one way or the other. Yeah, good question. So I don't know. Um, that's where that makes that's more plausible to me than any other theory I've seen, but it's not without its uh, challenges. All right. So you thought that was weird? If you do, maybe you do. Uh, Paul goes on to now argue a little differently for the head coverings in verse thirteen. He says, "This judge for yourselves." Is it proper for a woman to pray to God uncovered? 
right? So it's a rhetorical question. Is this proper? Is this appropriate? Is it, is it, is it a good thing for a woman to pray uncovered? And then his rationale is, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. Now, my first question is, does nature t- teach us that? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. But then this, uh, this last phrase, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So some of you have mentioned this theory, uh, sent me messages and put it in the, in the comments. There's a theory that uh, I remember years ago when I was preaching on this text, I came across it and I uh, kind of dismissed it, but um, then someone brought it up and I had to re- recall it again. So the theory is this, I'm going to go very quickly. Uh, someone in yesterday's uh, video put in the comments a PDF to this theory. I think the, the, the guy who's kind of popularized it is, uh, is it Troy Martin? So if you're interested in diving in more, check out that, uh, that PDF. And I think there's a podcast about it as well. Um, I'm not going to get into all the details. I'm going to give you the very high, you know, 30,000 foot level here of view. But basically, uh, the argument is that in the, uh, in the first century, the prevailing medical view was that, and I may get some of these details wrong. So, so don't, uh, I think I can get at least the the broad strokes right here. But basically, the prevailing view was um, hair drew semen. So for women to have long hair drew the semen up and enabled her to get pregnant. Whereas men, obviously one of the opposite... And the testicles drew the semen down so that it, the, the body could function accurately, if you know what I mean. Trying to be a little bit vague here. You know, I have kids around and don't want them to hear this right now. Um, but so the testicles for the man were given to draw semen down so he could uh, properly ejected into the woman. The woman had the long hair to draw it up so she'd get pregnant. And so this is all about fertility. And you think, well, that sounds crazy. It does sound crazy at first glance. It's not as crazy as you dive in, but this word covering is the word parabolane, boleon. And the theory goes, the argument goes that there are places in antiquity where this word is used to describe testicles. So normally it's a garment, it's a piece of clothing, it's a covering, but it can have uh, the meaning of testicle as well. And therefore, uh, since the woman doesn't have testicles, God has given her hair to draw the semen up so she can get pregnant. And it's, it's all about fertility. And the argument is that was the prevailing view of the day. And it's not, I mean, it's, it's true. This was a, an accepted view. This was sort of the, the medical anatomical view of things. Uh, there's enough evidence that that is true, that this is not as crazy as it may sound for those of you who've never heard this before. 
And so the idea is her glory has to do, the hair being her glory has to do with fertility. And that's what Paul means by uh, nature itself. Because a woman's glory is her ability to uh, get pregnant and the hair is given to facilitate that. And for the man, he wants to chop his hair so that he's not fighting gravity. And uh, I don't know if, if they would have said gravity like that then, but basically chop his hair so that uh, the testicles can do their work and he can play his part in fertility. So again, there's there's more to it. I don't mean to just uh, so quickly uh, summarize it as though to degrade it. Uh, read the read it. It's uh, it's worth your time to kind of consider. At the end of the day, I don't find it persuasive because I don't see that it flows that that it deals with the entire argument as well as I would like. But in one sense, I would say it kind of leads us to the same application as to what I think is going on here. Uh, let me see a couple of your comments before I wrap this up. Uh, Curtis says, do you believe Paul meant messengers when he said to be hospitable to all that we may even entertain angels? Um, maybe uh, it, it's possible. Um, though they're talking about Abraham and we know now those messengers were the angel of the Lord and some other heavenly beings, I think probably there it is the angelic realm that he's tying it to and, and so on, but, but it's possible. The word can go either way. Uh, Mike says, I like this explanation for messengers. They are in China and we're in the Soviet Union. Yeah, it, it, it does make some sense. Uh, for sure. Todd Grant, do not neglect to show hospitality. Yeah. Um, and so the question, that's what uh, Curtis was getting at, is that messengers or angels grammatically, linguistically could go either way. <laughs> Prepper Dirty says, oh boy, I can see myself explaining this to my senior citizen church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do that, man. You might... Uh... <laughs> It wakes some people up. That's <laughs> Lon says. So it was a cultural thing. I doubt. Uh, uh, <laughs> it could be. So let me just broaden this out. And I don't. We may come back and and look at this a little further <clears throat> tomorrow as we maybe head toward the uh, chapter fourteen where it talks about women being silent. So here's the. Let me let me just kind of zoom back, and I'm not going to fill in every detail because I don't know every detail, right? That's why we're talking about this. Is that there's some piece of this I just don't quite understand what's going on in the culture and the original context. But the broader point seems clear to me regardless of how we fill in some of these gaps. So let me just kind of walk through what I think Paul's main emphasis is. The part that's clear to me is he's laying out a, a hierarchy of authority. That's what headship means. Christ is the head of man. Man's ahead of woman, God's ahead of Christ. That I that I, I see clearly. So women are to submit to men, in particular, wives are to submit to husbands. I don't see the rest of the New Testament saying that all women submit to all men, but wives are to submit to their husbands. There's something about man with something on his head as he prays and prophesies that disgraces his head. So there's a play on words here of his physical head and his authoritative head, which is Christ. 
again, uh, Winter makes the case that in uh, in that day, for a man to go into a temple and offer sacrifices and such, he he uncovered his head, and if he had his head covered, it was offensive. And so, if that is the prevailing view of the day, it would make sense that. Paul is saying, because this is how everybody sees things, this is how it works in our culture, for a man to cover his head doing these religious things is offensive uh, to the head. So men, when you're praying prophesying, uncover your head because everybody knows in our day that that's disgraceful to the God you're praying to. On the other hand, every woman who has something on her head I'm sorry, who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, disgraces her head. So she disgraces her husband if she prays uncovered because she's no different than the one whose head is shaved. And we talked about this. Uh, A woman who committed adultery was to have her head shaved and play the role of the prostitute. So in that culture, a woman who prayed and prophesied without her veil on was it was it was unacceptable to do that that was disgraceful that was throwing off constraint and saying hey i'm going to be like these wild women and she's really no different from the the prostitute from the 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 woman out there saying i can have sex with whoever i want i can do whatever i want because i'm not going to be bound by uh, cultural restrictions on women and what paul would be saying here is don't act like them. Don't be like that. If you're going to uncover your head, then go ahead and cut it off, shave it off, and act like the, the whore that you're behaving like. It's, if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, then let her, uh, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. And again, the cultural part is, it's shameful to God's, for a man to have his head covered, so don't do that. But it's disgraceful and disrespectful for a wife to uncover her head. All right, I'm gonna have to come back to this tomorrow. I can see already. So let me just let me let me cut to the chase, and we'll come back and finish this up tomorrow. So what I think is going on, and this will maybe will answer Lon's question as well. What I think is going on is Paul's concern is that wives show the proper submission to their husbands in the gathering of the church and not join with the feminist rebellion rebellion of the culture. If that's true, then in our day, in our context, we have to ask the question, what could a wife do that would display a, a rebellious, unsubmissive heart to her husband in, in the presence of the, the gathered body? Because veils and head coverings, none of that means anything to us. Now, some have argued, some would argue that this is in the Bible as it is, and so we can't ever change that. But again, I would say it's like the holy kiss uh, or foot washing. Uh, you know, I don't know any Christians in here in America that greet one another with a holy kiss on a on a constant basis. Maybe there are some, but I don't. You know, I don't see that. I don't know that. And even those who are very strong sticklers for head coverings here. I don't see them doing the holy kiss because there's an element of that we see as cultural, but the principle of greeting one another warmly, we would say is, is 
applicable all the time. I think that's what's going on here. The principle is wives are to submit to their husbands and show that submission in the gathered church and not join with a rebellious, what we would call feminist culture. What that looks like is going to be different in our day than it was in the first century because, again, veils, head coverings, all that is meaningless. If, uh, if my wife wore a head covering on Sunday at the gathering, nobody would give that a second thought. Nobody would say, oh, look how submissive she is. They'd say, what's going on? <laughs> what's happening here? Uh, so Lon says it was a cultural thing. Uh, you already read that. In a church context, doesn't... Uh, in a church context, 1 Timothy 2 argues that women do not have authority over men. Um, maybe. Um, I'm trying to just think for a moment what... Uh, 1 Timothy 2 argues that women are not to teach and have authority over men. Yes. Um, so First Timothy 2, I would say, is broader than husbands. I'm not sure about this context. This context seems more likely husbands and wives to me. Because um, the implication would be then that in this context, that every man is the head of every woman. And I'm not sure I could go there. Dave says the, quote, American experiment has inverted the biblical design of authority. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that because I, based on a lot of the comments that have come through, I see we've got to talk about headship and submission, husbands and wives in Ephesians 2, or Ephesians 5. So we will we'll do that uh, probably not tomorrow, but uh, but next week. Um, Lon says both are church settings, yes, but they're making, I would say, different points. You'll let the context uh, make the point. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe you're right. But that line there, that, that line of authority in verse 2 uh, here, this one, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. That would mean I'm the authority over every woman who comes and gathers in my church and every other man is also an authority over every every woman. I yeah, I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here. Yeah, and Lance is just wondering. Yeah, and, and that's good. Those are the kind of questions we've got to ask. Um, we, we must ask all kinds of questions and see if we can get, get to the conclusion here. And that's why I'm saying the context here and these statements would, would go beyond what, what I see in the rest of Scripture. Um, doesn't mean, again, like I said at the beginning, uh, I, I don't, just because I'm asking these questions, you know, kind of pushing back on what you're saying doesn't mean you're wrong. I'm just trying to say, okay, if that's the case, what are the implications? And let's, let's see how does that reconcile with the rest of Scripture. And I don't see anywhere else every man being the head of every woman. Um, Mike says, is Christ the head of every man or every husband? Well, both, obviously. Obviously. Uh, that's why the context here ha is so important. What's he really getting at? Um, so anyway, great questions. Time is up. Uh, let's come back tomorrow. We'll wrap up this passage and then work toward 1 Corinthians 14, where it talks about women being silent. That should be fun, huh? <laughs> I appreciate your comments, and I love how you guys are wrestling with the text and asking these things. That's just so important. We don't want to just lock into any one view without careful scrutiny. It matters, though. So. 
Um, good stuff. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless.